Hi, and welcome to episode 147 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And I am Dr. Laurent Bannock. And if you are an ardent listener, if you've been listening to this podcast over the years, welcome back. I'm excited to have you you back. I know it's been a, a while since my last episode. And if you're new to the We Do Science podcast, welcome. I hope that you enjoy this episode and you continue to listen to future episodes and catch up on the huge catalogue of episodes that I have managed to amass over the last few years on all things sport and exercise, nutrition and related topics like exercise science and uh, exercise physiology. Doing my best to make this as interesting as I can because like you guys, I love this stuff. I love sport and exercise nutrition as a practitioner of many years and more recently as a researcher. It's a real pleasure for me to be able to have these conversations with all these great experts and researchers and academics and practitioners that I am lucky enough to get onto these podcasts. Just to have these conversations here in my office is something that I know many of you enjoy with me. So that's that's awesome. This is already a slightly different type of podcast, as you may have gathered. I'm trying to up my game when it comes to my podcasting efforts here. So in addition to a whole new series of, of guests that I'm, I'm going to be regularly pushing out these podcasts, you're also going to find a lot of new resources that are associated with these podcasts, uh, show notes, uh, transcripts, and other cool resources that you'll be able to find on the podcast page. All you've got to do is go to our website, which is theiopn.com, and simply click on the podcast tab, which will signpost you to the podcast website that has all of these resources. Now, bear with me. There's a lot of episodes uh, that go back a number of years, and I am slowly but surely going to be updating those, or most of those, not all of them, but most of those will be updated with a uh, sort of a re-edited episode, uh, along with transcripts and other resources that you'll see going forward for every episode. So I hope you find those those of use and do contact me if uh, if you've got some ideas or thoughts about the podcast that uh, you think could help improve it. I'm always looking to make this as beneficial as I can to you as sports nutritionists, performance nutritionists, sports dietitians, uh, sports scientists, personal trainers, and just generally people who love the science as much as I do about this, this area of sports science, sport and exercise nutrition. So anyway, in today's conversation, we're going to be talking about creatine. And you say creatine again? Yes, creatine again, because for reasons that will be obvious to most most of you, I'm sure, there's a lot to talk about with creatine. And I've had some great conversations with experts recently and over the years with people like Professor Darren Kandau, uh, Professor Eric Rawson, and Professor Craig Sale, some big names in creatine research. You'll You'll want to listen to those because they are all in their own right very very useful and important podcasts, I feel, for you to benefit from. In today's podcast with Dr. Scott Forbes, I had a fantastic conversation, which I really enjoyed, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did, about the myths and common questions that relate to creatine. We're going to look at things like, you know, the concerns that people have had with creatine's potential impact to affect dehydration, 
water retention? Does it cause cramping? You know, what about the different types of creatine? Are they all the same or is it creatine monohydrate is the king? You can find out in a few minutes when we get into this conversation. What about females? What about young people? What about older people? Athletes, non-athletes? You know, is creatine only for gaining muscle and strength and power or the other benefits of it and much more. Uh, and as you'll see, Dr. Scott Forbes has a wealth of information gained from his own significant research into this area. So as I said, all you've got to do is go to our website at www.theiopn.com to get access to all those extra goodies I've talked about, where also you will find information about our 100% online diploma program, practice-focused training program in sport and exercise nutrition, specifically aimed at performance nutrition practitioners, people not just looking for science, but those that are looking to be taught the science as is relevant to the practice of sport and exercise nutrition in the real world. You can learn about that course there. Uh, and also you can learn about our new SEMPRO platform. SEMPRO is our sport and exercise nutrition coaching and practice management system, a full set of tools that you will find enable practitioners of sport and exercise nutrition to be highly effective in how they work with their clients and with their teams, etc. So that's that for my little plugs of the things that we do at the IOPN. I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Dr. Scott Forbes. And now we're going to roll on to our discussion. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Scott Forbes. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I'm really pleased that I could find someone to actually talk to me. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, uh, in, I, I say this in the, in the typical British way of uh, uh, subtly being sarcastic, but I'm really enjoying all these lockdowns and so on, because ultimately it means I get to talk to some really fascinating uh, people such as yourselves about stuff that I find interesting, but the rest of my family don't. So these lockdowns give me the, uh, the excuses to start up new series of these podcasts. So I know people listening will go, yeah, it's been a few months, but I am pleased to tell everyone that I have a bunch of new episodes lined up. And Scott, you are the first of this new series. So today we're going to talk about sort of the common questions and misconceptions that relate to creatine, creatine monohydrate specifically, although we'll, we'll dig deeper into the variations of creatine. And as people will know, I'm fascinated by, you know, what is evidence and what constitutes as evidence that's actually relevant to real world practice, not just what's good science, but what actually is, is the sort of information we should be using to inform practice in the field, in the, in the gyms, you know, with our athletes and so on. So that's why I think there's going to be an interesting chat with you because creatine is, is one of the sort of the, the supplemental tools that will be in every nutritionist's toolbox, performance nutritionist, sports nutritionist, sports dietitians, depending on how you want to call yourself or what your interests are as a sports scientist or whatever. So I'm really, uh, I'm really excited to, to get into this. But before we, we sort of delve into this topic, why don't you give us a bit of background about who you are, Dr. Scott Forbes, who is Dr. Scott Forbes, and why creatine? What got you into this topic anyway? Yeah, so I am an associate professor at Brandon University in Canada. 
which is in the prairie. So there's not much around us. And it's actually very cold for about 10 months of the year. Yeah, you know what I, uh, sorry to butt in there, but that's what I love about it. over here in uh, in England, you know, everyone likes to moan about the weather and it's so cold. It's not cold. <laughs> it's not, it's not Canada cold, is it? You guys get it really cold. Yeah, it's, uh, it gets down to about minus 40 in the wintertime. So it's incredibly cold. Wow. Anyway, sorry, I distracted you. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm an associate professor. I, I study sport nutrition. Perhaps I should say performance nutrition because mm-hmm. I also do a variety of populations, including young individuals to enhance performance, but older adults to enhance performance, but function as well. So I did my master's degree at the University of Saskatchewan under the supervision of Dr. Phil Chilibeck. He was uh, uh, one of the top kind of researchers in the area of creatine and resistance training in older adults. And so I was introduced to creatine at that point. And then I also got connected with Dr. Darren Kandow, who's a professor at the University of Regina, and you've had him on your podcast. Mm. And so he does a lot of creatine research as well. So I was kind of thrown into the creatine research world, and I've really just gained an interest in creatine because it seems to be beneficial for so many different things. Oh, I'm looking forward to delving into that with you. But since you mentioned Professor Darren Kando, yeah, he he uh, he he and I had a great conversation about creatine. Specifically, we we talked about creatine monohydrate from sort of the exercise, sport, and health applications perspective. So that episode alone is a really good review, and I highly recommend everyone go check that one out. That was episode one hundred and forty-one back in in May of this year, two thousand twenty. But also, I had a great chat with Professor Eric Rawson a few years ago now, episode 73 on creatine for health and performance. And uh, very early on into the history of this podcast with um, my good friend, uh, Professor Craig Sale, who, of course, worked under Roger Harris, who's a, a huge god in the world of creatine. So um, they're all worth worth a good listen. But in this case, we're going to talk about something quite specific, which I know you're a co-author of, a, of an upcoming paper, hopefully, on this topic. And of course, you've published in various areas, of course, not just in creatine, but we'll hopefully delve into that a little bit, particularly with things like creatine and its use in combat sports, for example. I think that'll be fascinating if if we've got time. So I know this paper hasn't come out yet, and I know that there's a wide variety of experts that have contributed to this paper that I'm loosely basing this conversation off many of whom I know or have published, like Dr. Jose Antonio, of course. Oh, and of course, Abby Smith-Ryan, who I've actually interviewed on a previous uh, podcast there, not just uh, Eric Rawson. But why Why did you guys feel that, you know, we needed a paper to be published on this topic anyway? I mean, surely, surely everything we know about creatine is well-established, well-known, and there is absolutely no controversies whatsoever, I say sarcastically, about supplements in general. So, so what happened there? We, we do a lot of creatine research, but there seems to be a lot of resistance with creatine in particular. And there's a lot of misconceptions, things like people believe that creatine causes baldness or creatine's a steroid, for example. I think in the general public, there seems to be this this fear of creatine. And so we really felt strongly that we should probably write a paper, an evidence-based paper, to kind of look at some of those myths 
and misconceptions and try to come up with an evidence-based answer. Yeah. And this reminds me of emphasizing why I like the term performance nutrition more than I like sport and exercise nutrition or sports nutrition is the most common term. Because the thing about sports nutrition is it sort of leads everyone down this path of thinking that, you know, our nutritional recommendations or our supplements or whatever are entirely about sports performance. And it's not. And I think that's the great thing about creatine is that it isn't just about sports performance. And, and of course, that's something that you addressed and we'll discuss is, you know, a good question about creatine that you can ask is, is it just for building muscles? Is it just for getting you stronger? No. And that was something that came up a lot when I talked to Eric Rawson, for example, when we were talking about the impact that that can have on aging and brain function even. It's absolutely uh, fascinating and with Craig Sale's work on you know bone health, not just the work they did on protein and bone health, but also the relevance that you know creatine has on that. And there's so many questions, so many questions that come up that researchers are attempting to answer. But of course, the general public and our athletes don't necessarily understand what those questions are or the contexts you know that are behind all of that. So hopefully, we can we can set some of these some of these things straight in this conversation. Now, in the unlikely event that a listener hasn't heard those other podcasts that I've done, or maybe they will in the future, we best just bring them back to some basics about, you know, what actually is creatine and you know where to go from here. Take it from there. Yeah. So creatine is formed from three amino acids, arginine, glycine, and methionine. And in your kidneys and liver, it's put together in a two-step process and it forms creatine. So that's one way that we can actually get creatine is by our bodies actually producing creatine. We can also get creatine from our diet as well. So things like meat, for example, fish, poultry, they all contain creatine. And so we can also get it through food sources but we can also get it through dietary supplements. Those are kind of the three ways that we can get creatine. But once it gets into our bloodstream, about 95% of it's actually taken up by the muscle. Some of it's converted to phosphocreatine, and essentially that's like stored potential energy, which can be utilized for high-intensity exercise performance. So would you describe creatine as a food? An ergogenic aid? How would you respond to that type of question? Because I know it's an interesting answer. That's definitely an interesting question for sure. So typically when I think of, of food, I would think of macronutrients, so things like proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. But creatine's use as an energy source as well, just like fats, proteins, and, and carbohydrates could be. I think of it as an ergogenic aid as well, because it definitely enhances exercise performance in both younger and older individuals. And as you've already mentioned, it seems to affect more than just muscle performance. It can also impact bone health and perhaps cognitive function as well, or brain health. That's what I find so interesting about creatine. And also listeners will know I'm totally into context. And, and my, my new extension to context is relevance as well, but I'll, I'll come back to some of that in a minute. But the reason why I'm mentioning that is because some of this depends, doesn't it? So if you're a vegan or vegetarian, then 
I guess the answer to that question changes slightly because of reasons you'll help us understand in a minute, but also potentially male or female, old or young would influence the potential for that to be a, a supplement, a food supplement, or whether or not it's going to be an ergogenic aid. Maybe you could, I, you know, this is actually something that maybe later on in the paper is discussed, but since we've raised it, I think this is a fascinating area when it comes to you know, should I or shouldn't I take creatine? And is it even relevant to me? You know, how does that fit with you? Yeah. So first of all, yeah. So if you don't consume meat in your diet, as you're a vegetarian or a vegan, typically you have lower creatine levels within your muscle and typically respond better to creatine supplementation. So they seem to, vegetarians seem to respond better. So there's a study done by Darren Burke and Darren Kando in the early, early 2000s, looking at vegetarians versus non-vegetarians and how they responded to creatine over a training program. And those that were vegetarian, the gains in strength and the gains in, in muscle size were, were greater in the vegetarian group than the uh, non-vegetarian group. So there seems to be some greater effectiveness in vegetarians than non-vegetarians. Actually, my PhD supervisor, Gordon Bell, did a study looking at responders and non-responders to creatine. And what they actually showed was individuals who tended to respond better to creatine had lower creatine levels in their muscle to start out with. And they also had more fast twitch fibers or type 2 fibers. So again, that's possibly why creatine would respond better in vegetarians. The one thing to think I don't really like the term responders and non-responders because creatine actually does so many different things as well. Mm. So just because maybe they didn't respond from a muscle performance standpoint, it might've had an impact on their bone health and it might've had an impact on their cognitive function. So it's hard to say, you know, if creatine shouldn't be taken by the non-responders in that particular study because potentially it could have had a benefit in other areas that weren't measured. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point because people have expectations by virtue of, I took a pill, ergo, you know, I've got big muscles. There might be an element of that with steroids, you know, the sort of the, 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 the super physiological doses of, of that. And actually, I had a great chat with Stu Phillips all about the hormone hypothesis, which is a really interesting podcast we did a few years ago now. But you make a good point. I think this is an important aspect to creatine and other supplements generally, is if your expectation is for it to have an effect, well, it depends on the situation that this starts out at. And if, for example, you are, like you say, a vegan or vegetarian, you're having an insufficient intake of creatine, if you like, therefore taking supplemental creatine clearly just normalizes that situation, doesn't it? So it's not magic, it's a normalization process. Whereas I think it's where people who are already eating a bunch of, of say fish and animal protein, they're getting some creatine. So maybe there's there's less magic there. But again, it, it, if all you're going to do is focus on one area, like you point out, then um, I think you, yeah, you, you, you well, yeah, you don't quite get the bigger picture, do you? Now, now that I've mentioned that, is there a difference between 
somebody taking creatine for a lot, you know, for a, a chronic period of time, and there is some degree of adaptation to that by the body, as opposed to an acute intake of creatine, uh, where the body is, you know, is suddenly put into a situation where it's only just taken this stuff in, uh, hasn't had enough time to adapt over weeks or months. Is that something that is relevant with creatine intake and our expectations of taking it? Common question is, do you have to cycle creatine, hmm. like go on and off creatine? There's actually been no research to examine the effectiveness of creatine when you cycle creatine versus when you don't cycle creatine. So it's a difficult question to answer from that perspective. And it seems like with creatine, what you need to do is you need to load the muscle. And there's a few different ways that you can load the muscle. You can take 20 grams a day, and typically you do that in four different doses. So you just make five grams four times a day to get 20 grams, and you load the muscle for five days. And essentially that just saturates the muscle with creatine. But we also know Harris, for example, seminal studies looking at creatine supplementation and, and Paul Greenhoff showed that if you take a lower dose of creatine, but just a little bit longer period of time, you can also saturate the muscle with creatine. Both those strategies are effective to enhance creatine levels within the muscle, and they'll be equally effective at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's an important point is there are several ways in which you can achieve the result. I guess the main question you have to ask yourself in order to determine which of those is relevant is how quickly that process happens, right? So maybe you could talk about that, take us through that situation. Yeah, absolutely. So if your goal is to increase performance in a week, for example, then perhaps you'd want to load your muscles with as much creatine as possible. So perform that 20 grams a day. If you're just looking for general health and you're just interested in increasing your performance, maybe beyond 30 days, then just doing the lower dose is, is perfectly fine and sufficient. So it comes down to, I guess, context or, or relevance sure. to the individual and what their goals are. So just to add a layer of complexity then, because since we've already mentioned, there is a difference between someone who's habitual diet or lifestyle, if you like, has led them down the path of not eating animal sourced protein, for example. What are the implications of that on this, this process of do I take an acute, you know, loading protocol or do I just go about it the other way? You know, what, are, what from your perspective, bearing in mind that it's not just a lifestyle choice, there might be religious reasons, there might be practical reasons why someone is not eating those type types of foods. What are the what are the things that you think that we need to be thinking about as sports nutritionists or sports scientists that are considering using this and, and need to be aware of this factor in their decision making? Yeah, definitely. So if you're suggesting that somebody takes a supplement, for example, it'd be nice to know where that supplement came from, first of all. There are plant-based companies that sell creatine. So if somebody is a, a vegan or a vegetarian, there's uh, plant-based sources of, of creatine that they've extracted and uh, they put into a supplement. So that's one possibility. 
to, yeah, basically just from an ethical, moral, or whatever reason that they're choosing to be vegetarian or vegan, then you can provide them a supplement for that. The other thing to be aware of, though, with supplements is that there's obviously some risk of contamination and they are regulated, but they're not regulated to the same degree as medicine or things, things of that nature. So um, typically you'd want to find a product that you can trust ultimately. So whether it's NSF certified or trusted in sport or has some sort of third party independent testing to basically show that the product is what the product says it is. Yeah. And and that's just critical, obviously for the elite professional tested athletes that goes with any kind of supplement is always make sure they're batch tested and, and all that stuff. And, you know, mentioned that with my guests many a time. So that's just a given. And we'll put a link actually in the show notes. We're going to have show notes, by the way, folks. So do come back to the podcast website so you can get access to all of these things that we're talking about, including the papers we're we're discussing. So let, let me just circle back a bit because, yes, I think you've made it clear that the great thing about this conversation is even if you are a vegan or vegetarian or for whatever reason you don't want to eat meat and you're going, look, this is all very interesting, guys, but I'm not going to eat this stuff because it comes from animals. No, you don't have to because it is possible to get this from non-animal sources. That's the great thing. But also, and you you sort of mentioned there that there are sources that are contaminated. And of course, like in anything nowadays, you can buy supplements from anywhere. But am I right in saying that there is a particular part of the world which tends to be the place that, that creatine comes from where it is made at a much higher standard that is very likely to be contaminant-free as opposed to other places. Maybe you could just give us a bit of background on that when we're looking for our creatine supplements. I'm actually not too sure about that. Are you suggesting ah, that Canada yeah. is the safest place to get creatine? Well, so what I would, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too much of a gray area in that question. So I'm merely pointing out that, for example, the bulk of the creatine that is used in research, for example, and is deemed to be the highest quality source of that comes from Germany, doesn't it? Yeah, Creapure. Cre- so that's what we use in, in most of our studies. And again, just because it's yeah independently tested and seems to be the purest form of, of creatine out there. So we've just used that product um, for quite a few of our studies and, and a lot of other creatine researchers use the same product. And look, neither of us have got shares in Creepure or whatever. It just That's just the thing. When it comes to creatine, unlike many other supplements, which you can get from lots of different sources and suppliers and labs and so on, the ultimate bulk raw ingredient does tend to be Creepure. So you do want to be looking for that on the label. But I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but if you do, it'd be great to share with us why that might be relevant because I know some other sources of creatine and we can tie this into the different types of creatine as well. It's not just creatine monohydrate, is it? But the purity and the types, why, why is this conversation relevant? Yeah, so the different types of creatine might have different levels of creatine in them. But we know creatine monohydrate has been the most studied form of creatine. And we know that it's really effective. We know that it's safe. And it's also cheap as well. So it's one of the cheapest forms of creatine that you can buy if you go to a supplement store. 
that's been a common question as well. So are different forms of creatine, you know, superior or better? And the research is pretty clear that no other form of creatine is actually better than creatine monohydrate. And one of the reasons for that is that creatine monohydrate is absorbed almost completely, about 99% of it's absorbed and taken up. So even if you can find something to enhance the absorption of creatine, it's not going to have a, a big impact relative to creatine monohydrate. Yeah. So what about, um, let's just really get into that because it, it, it is an interesting area, you know, and of course you've got various manufacturers will have you believe that they're special format of of creatine which you've mentioned there are variations on this but really only creatine monohydrate is the one you want to take because as you said it's basically the cheapest anyway so why would you go for the other things and and the creatine monohydrate is ultra effective as is as is though is it as good in a capsule just as powder do you take it on its own can you bung it in your protein shake, or what about hot and cold drinks? I know there's uh, some interest there too. What, what, tell us about that. Yeah, so that's another common question as well. So what form do you get and things like that? So typically, most of the research is done on creatine monohydrate powder. And with that, you just mix it with water. But it depends on the temperature of the water, how easily it mixes, actually. So if you have room temperature water, you can mix about 14 grams of creatine monohydrate in a liter of water. So that's something to be considered. So if you have, if you're, most people supplement with five grams, to do that, you'd have to mix it with about 350 milliliters of water to completely dissolve that creatine monohydrate. So that's really important as well for people to kind of understand is that you need to mix it with water and it depends on the temperature of the water. That's really going to affect whether it dissolves or not. Yeah. And that's where you find if it's in a, a nice cold glass of water, you're going to find some of the crystals are still in the bottom of the glass after you slugged it. Right. So you just need to be mindful of that, but it's still going to work though, isn't it? Even if it's in cold, a cold drink, which many of us will have, from time to time and we knock that back and even if we do manage to make sure that we swish it around a bit and make sure we got those last bits at the end it's still going to work though right yeah it will still work but it might not work as effectively right so just something to be aware of and then again if it's left at the bottom of your of your shake then if you're not ingesting it then of course it's not going to work in that situation yeah but a lot of the original studies actually mix creatine with hot tea yeah. And that was a really effective way to dissolve creatine and to ingest creatine. And it doesn't ruin the tea or the, the, the hot coffee or the hot drink. It's pretty tasteless, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Creatine tastes like nothing. So whenever people try creatine for the first time, they're usually surprised like, what? this doesn't taste like anything. Yeah, I know. Isn't that yeah, great? So uh, if you're like me, you're a real coffee snob. I have, I, I mean, the only putting milk in my coffee is the best way to ruin a coffee as far as I'm concerned, but that's, I'm, I'm a Frenchman. So that's basically how that works. But I have actually, uh, in one of my uh, crazy lockdown <laughs> experiments, put some creatine in my coffee and I couldn't tell the difference. So I can vouch for that. For those of you that are looking to experiment, you know, I guess that's one thing that is good for researchers because when you give 
product supplements to your participants, that can be an issue, can't it? So I guess that's a major a major pro when it comes to creatine. For sure, yeah. So <laughs> um, that yeah, if, if it tastes bad, then that's not going to be a viable product. For for example, uh, beetroot juice. Oh yeah, it's horrible. You know, like it, it's a it's a very effective supplement, and Andy Jones has shown clearly that it's beneficial for a lot of reasons, but. I don't think it will ever truly catch on because it just tastes awful. But, you know, joking aside, I think this is an important factor. It's not just us having a pleasant conversation about how much it doesn't impact taste. That is an important factor when it comes to compliance. I've worked with a lot of athletes over the years, and I can think of lots of reasons why an athlete won't take something, including the color of the bottle of the drink, sports drink that they're taking. They just don't like the look of the bottle. They won't take it. I mean, it's amazing. That is, of course, football players, as in soccer players. But when it comes to creatine, it's something that you can get in in 110 different ways, and it's not going to be an issue. And I think given, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig even deeper into this, but given just how useful creatine potentially is, the fact that there's almost no barrier to how you can take it is a major plus for it, which is why it's, for me, it's sort of one of the essential things I would have in my toolbox of supplements, of food supplements, ergogenic aids, etc. So Scott, we briefly mentioned, or you briefly mentioned five grams. So let, let's just talk about dosing. You know, when you go back to my analogy of you take your your steroid and it has an impact or you take your painkiller and it has an impact, that's where you start also needing to go into the fact that it is a dose-dependent situation because the dose does matter. The dose is influenced by a number of factors to include the size of the person, but also where we were just coming from that conversation about the fact that an individual's habitual diet may not have much creatine in it in the first place, which of course changes the baseline, if you like. So let's look at this from several perspectives then. So number one, how much is a dose that needs to be effective? And I know you talked about cycling, but you can come back to that as well. But also what about that perspective of of varying baselines and the size and age and even gender of an individual? You know, what are all those different things that can impact that dose? Yeah, so most most of the individuals uh, lose about two grams of creatine a day. It's broken down into creatinine. And so you need to replace that. And so there's been studies, for example, the seminal study by, by Harris, for example, and Paul Greenhalgh that showed that if you take three grams a day for 28 days, you can saturate muscle creatine content. Most people take five grams a day just out of simplicity and to ensure that they're getting enough creatine. So that's usually the most common dosing strategy is just five grams a day and you'll be perfectly fine. And it's also, again, from a perspective of trying to give that to you, information to your athletes, is telling them to take five grams is a simple number to remember. And we know that that's very effective. But in a lot of our research, we actually give 0.1 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. And that just might kind of control for if somebody has, you know, more muscles, a bigger person, then they might need a little bit more creatine than a smaller person. So that's our relative dosing strategy. But no one's actually ever looked at taking a relative dose versus an absolute dose 
and whether that actually impacts performance or bone health or cognitive function any differently. So that's maybe one area of research that needs to be done. It's amazing when you think how many studies have been done with creatine. There's still there's still more questions and answers. That's what I love about all of this. Yeah, so, absolutely. So so there's kind of those two strategies. One is if you're really concerned if somebody's really big, maybe take 0.1 grams per kilogram per day for the general public and for most individuals, just taking five grams a day will be perfectly fine. Should an important take home from that conversation be then that the dose is critical or at least consuming enough is critical relative to too much? What's the situation with that one? Basically, if you consume too much creatine, you're just going to excrete that. So some people think that it's going to be damaging to your kidneys and liver, but the evidence for that is pretty strong that it does not do any damage to your kidneys and liver, sim- similar to uh, a high protein diet. So I know S- Stu Phillips has been kind of <laughs> a proponent of high protein diets, and that's really effective for enhancing a lot of different health related things. But a lot of people will say that it's bad for your kidneys and liver, and he's clearly showing that it's not. Similarly with creatine, it's not bad for your kidneys and liver. You're just going to essentially waste your money because you're just not utilizing that product and you're just not absorbing it into your muscles. But it's so cheap that it's it's kind of fun to be like throwing the, the pound notes or dollar notes up in the air metaphorically because you're not really... It's not really a risk one way or the other. The cost to benefit of that situation is you're better off with it than without. So don't worry. Just make sure you don't underdose. Is that what way you would suggest? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why perhaps if you only lose two grams a day, in theory, you should only need two grams a day to replace. But that's why we suggest five grams a day. Basically, it's you can err on the high side and there's no real risk of that versus consuming too little. Right. So so for the folks out there that, that they dip their scoop into the bag and they literally look at that spoon under a microscope to see whether it's it's completely packed full or they start getting anxiety because it's three grains under a full dose, it's not going to be a big problem, is it? No, that's not required. So thank you. you one of the things I was going to get into is the safety profile of, of creatine, which, as you pointed out, is in healthy normal, healthy people, there's zero evidence of any relevance. Um, so that that's just a knock that one dead scenario. But what about the other side effects, some of which are good, some of which are potentially not so good from a strategic perspective? And I guess the first one I would go down in that conversation would be the concern that some people have with the idea that supplementation in creatine often, allegedly, often will lead to water retention. What, what's going on there? And why do people even think that's a concern? And, and is there some truth to that? And, you know, where is that a problem? And where could that be an advantage, you think? Yeah, so that's one of the most common side effects with creatine is a little bit of weight gain and water retention. But that tends to happen typically in that loading phase. So if you take 20 grams a day for the first five days, there's some evidence to show that you increase both total body water and intracellular water. So creatine is going to affect the osmolarity 
And the way that it actually transports into the muscle is through a sodium dependent transporter. And so if you bring sodium into the muscle cell, it actually brings water with it. And so we know that as kind of that's one of the mechanisms whereby creatine functions and how it actually works. But there's actually been quite a few longer term studies where they look at total body water and it actually doesn't change as much as people think it does. And actually there is a recent study and one of the co-authors was Brad Schoenfeld. I know you've uh, worked with him or chatted with him uh, before. And he actually showed that individuals gained muscle and they also increased their intracellular water, but that was uh, correlated with each other. So those that gained more muscle also gained more intracellular water. And so there's also been some research by Mark Tarnopolsky, who's a Canadian researcher from McMaster University. He's done a lot of research looking at creatine from a clinical perspective. But he actually showed that increase in water content within the muscle actually stimulates a bunch of molecular events within the muscle that lead to muscle growth. So increasing things like myogenic regulatory factors and that lead to satellite cell and increased myonuclei, things like that. So that's actually a good thing to increase water content within the muscle. People are always worried about that or they think it's just a benign thing that, oh, now I took creatine, I have all this water weight. But it's actually, that's going to be stimulating muscle growth. So speaking of muscle growth, look, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of conversation you're intending to have about creatine, you know, the intersection, all these conversations will come to at some point is the fact that it has an impact, a positive impact on muscle growth and muscle strength. But going back to muscle growth in particular, is creatine an anabolic steroid or, and I, I know that's an answer in itself, or if it's not an anabolic steroid, well, how does that, how does it work anyway? Does it just, just as taking it make your muscles grow? You know, how, what, what, what's the physiology behind that? Yeah, so it, it's definitely not an anabolic steroid, but it does have anabolic properties. So it does stimulate muscle growth. And actually the way that creatine works is through, there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms. It's not just by increasing the amount of phosphocreatine within the muscle, which would increase the capacity for the muscle to basically perform and support that high intensity exercise. Creatine does other things as well. It actually brings in glycogen to the muscle, which could be a benefit, especially for endurance athletes or athletes that are trying to increase glycogen resynthesis as quickly as possible. But creatine also works through IGF-1. It affects intracellular water content and influences myogenic regulatory factors. It also has been shown to inhibit myostatin, which is an inhibitor of muscle growth. So creatine works through a whole bunch of different pathways besides just increasing phosphocreatine, which is pretty exciting from my standpoint. But for ind individuals to understand is that it can impact muscle in a variety of ways that could ultimately lead to muscle growth. And we've done a few meta-analysis now that show that if you combine creatine with resistance exercise, so that's an important point as well, because we've done studies where we've just given creatine 
and people don't don't get bigger muscles. Uh, but if you combine it with resistance exercise, they get bigger and stronger muscles compared to if they just performed resistance training with a placebo. Yeah, so creatine. I guess the way you look at that is it's the ultimate dance partner, isn't it? To to exercise, you can lift, you can do your various forms of resistance training, and just through that process alone, we know you'll get a good result. But as you've already pointed out, if you're not necessarily getting enough creatine in your diet, then the creatine can make a pretty noticeable difference in that situation. So I guess it's that correlation between exercise and the consumption one way or the other of an optimal amount of of creatine that's going to have your best bang for your buck, right? Absolutely. I actually had uh, somebody the other day, I told them they should be taking creatine. And he said, well, then I'm going to have to start exercising. (laughs) I was like, what? You're not exercising? Like that's a, that's a mandatory thing in life that you have to exercise. But I was also pretty surprised that he put that correlation together that you have to exercise when you're consuming creatine to get the best benefits. Yeah. Well, we'll, uh, that's going to be another chat we'll get into in a minute because there are reasons to take creatine, even if you're not going to exercise. But we'll come back to that in a minute because, as you said, exercise is such an important thing. It is like the, it is, you know, there aren't many panaceas out there, but exercise is going to be one of them. Hence, exercise is medicine. That big movement is so powerful. So look, uh, and I will tread softly when I go into this particular topic, but talking of correlations, I've spoken to Darren, yourself, Craig Sale, Eric Rawson, and a number of others, even Roger Harris. And uh, I have noticed there's been a certain degree of follically challenged researchers involved in this. But since we, you know, we sort of danced around the, the idea that creatine, you know, is it an anabolic steroid? You know, does it have an impact on, you know, your, your, your sort of anabolic processes like testosterone or whatever? And that leads some people to be worried about whether or not creatine will actually cause hair loss or contribute somehow to to baldness. And it is a genuine concern for for some people, um, which is why I find it funny that some of the world's leading researchers in this topic happen to have not a lot of hair. But, you know, is, is this a myth? Is there some reality there? What, what's going on there? Yeah, so there's one study that was done in rugby players, actually, where they showed that there is an increased conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, or DHT. And DHT has been linked to male pattern baldness. That's basically where that myth started from was that there's this one study that showed in the creatine group, there was a greater increase in DHT and DHT has been linked to male pattern baldness. So no study has actually looked at hair loss per se. There's actually a researcher, Grant Tinsley from the US that he's he's registered a clinical trial to actually examine the impact of creatine on hair loss. So we'll have a a truly evidence-based answer. But the limitation with that uh, study in rugby players was that the hormonal levels all stayed within normal ranges. So it's hard to really, with confidence, basically say that DHT levels truly changed with creatine or was it just, you know, kind of normal biological variation. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look, the, the process of conducting research, the knowledge that comes from that process and the ways in which that information is translated and then sort of transformed into words in on paper. And I mean, that's a complex process. We talk about it a lot on this podcast, of course. There are a lot of issues with that process, as we all we all know, but we won't stay on that one. But look, there's loads of pros to taking creatine, and we'll cover some more in a minute. But you've always got to look at the cost of benefit of things. You can, but should you, is my sort of catchphrase for this sort of thing. You know, what, what are the cost of benefits of taking it? And by being aware of the strengths and limitations of, of these, you know, these choices will enable you to make better informed decisions as a, as, a, as a practitioner or a user or a researcher or whatever. And another area of concern that some people have had with creatine is the perceived idea, whether or not it's reality, you can help us understand, but this idea that it might lead to dehydration and muscle cramping. Why is there speculation on this? And is there any actual facts to that? Yeah, so that was actually really interesting area to research because there's a lot of people out there saying that creatine does cause muscle cramps and dehydration but we've already talked about the impact of creatine bringing water into the muscle so that's the complete opposite of of dehydration what they thought was if that water got into the muscle it's essentially like stuck in the muscle and then you would have less extracellular water and if you tried to exercise in the heat or did some sort of strenuous exercise that perhaps would cause some sweating and dehydration, then that water that's stuck in the muscle wouldn't be able to come out and, and essentially help. And it might actually be bad to exercise either in a hot environment or do strenuous exercise with creatine. But there's been some uh, great research by Rick Kreider that's actually they followed football players over an entire season and they looked at who got muscle cramps and heat illnesses and things of that nature. And they actually showed the complete opposite that creatine prevented muscle cramps to the opposite from a dehydration perspective. Yeah. It's fascinating. And, you know, there's an obsession with weight loss and weight gain, of course. And I guess from several perspectives, I can think of, you know, it's relevant because number one, in your average sort of general population, the perspective or the, the implications of gaining weight or losing weight can induce some severe anxiety and some behavioral repercussions of that, you know, can be quite severe for some people, including even leading to depression and, you know, ironically then overeating or, you know, downing a bottle of wine or something to compensate when actually they didn't understand that there's a difference between weight gain and, and fat gain. So if someone's going to gain weight, I know you've already mentioned this, but if they're gaining weight and they're going to correlate that with, I've increased my fat mass, is that even possible? Because that is something that I know practitioners working in the trenches with clients, particularly in the general population, but I've definitely had athletes You'd like to think they're more aware, but the minute they see those numbers go up on the scales, it's like, holy shit, you know, I've gained weight and you're the nutritionist and you gave me bad advice. And of course, it's not my fault as the client, it's all yours. So, so that we're armed 
with the right knowledge and response to that, is creatine going to be a suspect in that situation? It, it will cause you to gain weight. That's typically about one to three kilograms, but it's due to an increase in muscle mass. And so it will not increase fat mass. And there's actually some really interesting research in, in rats that shows that if you actually block the creatine transporter at adipocytes, it reduces whole body energy expenditure. And so they're actually suggesting that if you take creatine or supplement with creatine, you can increase energy expenditure. And based off energy balance, if you can increase energy output or energy expenditure, that will actually help with losing fat mass. And so we read some of that research and we were pretty interested in it. So we actually did a systematic review in older adults and we looked at all the individuals that took creatine and performed re resistance training versus those that just performed resistance training. We already had all the data for the lean body mass to show that they can increase muscle mass. So we're like, well, let's just extract all the fat mass data. And when we did that, those that took creatine, their percent body fats significantly were reduced and they lost about a 0.5 kilograms more fat mass when they took creatine compared to when they took a placebo. So creatine not only helps you gain lean body mass, but it potentially helps you lose fat mass. Not a massive amount, but at least it's heading in the right direction. So that's usually what I talk to individuals that are kind of on the fence and worried about weight gain. I ask them, do you want to increase lean body mass? and lose fat mass, and they're usually like, yes, I do, then creatine's the supplement for you. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's a perfect segue uh, in this conversation. You had mentioned older individuals that you did some of your studies in, and I guess that's a really interesting area. You know, on the conversations that I have with researchers about protein need and older individuals, sarcopenia, older athletes, that's that sort of thing. It's very interesting to see how their needs change. Is this something that is also the case for creatine? And, you know, I'm thinking about my own father, for example, you know, the implications of, of maybe not eating as much, but even if in a master's level athlete who might be eating enough, is there a reason for them to also be factoring in creatine? Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge amount of research in that particular area to show that creatine is effective at increasing muscle mass. Um, Phil Chilibeck and Darren Kando, they recent, or in 2017, I, I'd say that's recently, completed a meta-analysis with over 700 participants that were in the meta-analysis. And they showed that those that took creatine and performed resistance training, they actually gained 1.37 more kilograms of, of muscle mass compared to if you just performed resistance training. So it's very effective. And then we've also shown that it also improves sit to stand as well, which is a surrogate marker of falls risk. So potentially if you took creatine, you could reduce your risk of, of falling. That could be a game changer for the older population, which makes it, uh, I mean, I mean, we're now exploding the concept that it is only for for sort of resistance and power type activities. But since you're 
teasing us with the benefits that creatine can have with older individuals. What I mean, why else might I want to consider or, or would a listener or a member of a listener's family want to consider taking creatine? What are some of the other areas you think are relevant in this conversation? Yeah, so a lot of people take creatine to enhance muscle mass and strength and people thought it was just for bodybuilders. But we know now it's really effective for a variety of populations from perhaps even younger, although there, although there's a limited evidence to show real effectiveness in, in younger individuals, there's not nearly as much data in children or adolescents as there is in an adult population. But there's, uh, there is potentially some benefit to younger children or adolescents. And it's safe for them, isn't it? It's safe for the young, young athletes. Yeah, so I'm slightly hesitant to say that it's truly safe. Yeah, uh, because there's actually been no study to that's with a with a primary focus to look at safety in children or adolescents. But there's definitely been studies done in children and and adolescents, and they haven't shown any harm of it. Yeah. So with the limited evidence that we have, it does seem to be safe for children or adolescents. And then creatine could be a benefit for for endurance athletes as well. Again, increasing glycogen into the muscle is a benefit for endurance athletes. That's well known that carbohydrates can enhance endurance performance and glycogen is an important substrate for enhancing endurance performance. And Louise Burke, for example, did a study in elite cyclists looking at 120 kilometer time trial. And they loaded with either carbohydrates or carbohydrates and creatine. And they showed that their performance at the end of the race was better when they took uh, creatine, which was pretty cool. So it could be a benefit for endurance athletes as well. And also, sorry, because I I have a particular interest in nutrition for endurance or ultra-endurance athletes, but also where athletes are engaged in high volumes of training, but particularly in a competition event, like a multi-day event, or, you know, you think of cyclists out there for days on end, like in Tour de France or, or whatever, their caloric intake or particularly their protein intake might not be something that they're hitting on a day-to-day basis in that short period of time, but the creatine can play a useful role in ameliorating the loss of muscle, ma- muscle loss or muscle damage. Is that, is that true as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's potentially some other benefits to it that it can enhance recovery, but yeah, reduce the amounts of inflammation or muscle damage. There's one particular study where they looked at muscle damage following a marathon and those that took creatine had less muscle damage. So there's, there's some pretty cool evidence for that. There was actually, I did my PhD at the university of Alberta and in one of the labs beside me, Ted Putman did some research looking at creatine in rats that were doing chronic low frequency stimulation. Mm. So essentially what they did was they would zap these rats and cause a muscle contraction. And they, they did that for a 12 hour period. So 12 hours a day, they were doing this low frequency stimulation. So to me, that's like extreme endurance training. If you can, endurance train 12 hours a day that that'd be nuts but that's essentially what they're making these rats do so they took muscle biopsies so they took the muscle out of the rats and they showed that with the 
chronic low frequency stimulation, their aerobic capacity improved, which makes sense. You do endurance training, you're going to improve. But those that took creatine, they preserved their fast twitch properties. So to me, as a as an endurance athlete, that's pretty cool that if I'm doing endurance training, perhaps I can improve my aerobic potential, mm-hmm. but I'm also going to maintain, if I took creatine, maintain my fast twitch properties as well, which would be important for, you know, bursts of activity in a race or sprinting at the end and winning the race. That could be of benefit. Absolutely. Well, that's an important point you make is that when you look at endurance events, particularly multi-day endurance events, you know, you, you see a lot of these athletes keeping up with each other. And it's only when you get things like hill climbs, sprint, sprint finishes, that's what separates the uh, the men from the boys, so to speak, isn't it? And that's going to be your ability to unleash the uh, the fast twitch action, isn't it? And often historically avoided by endurance athletes. So when it comes to periodizing your training with your athlete, clearly they should not be ignoring the uh, potential role for, for creatine. Would you say that would be in-season, out-of-season, depending on what they're trying to achieve with their training, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of uh, context, context, I guess, associated with creatine. Again, there's, some, there's actually some evidence that if you took creatine and you gain water weight because of that, or you gain weight, that that could actually be of detriment to running performance. So you need to take a lot of things into consideration. If you're doing a 100-kilometer race and you weigh an extra three kilograms, is that actually going to help your performance at the end of the day or not? So there's lots of things to take into consideration with creatine and what race you're doing, how many hills there are, how do you personally respond to creatine, things like that. Yeah, just it, that's why I like to drum home the need to understand what tools are in your toolbox, the strengths, the limitations. Think about the bigger picture and hence why I like to say you can, in this case, take creatine, but should you? Probably yes, but just think about it. And if you can't answer the question, then you don't understand the situation sufficiently. So therefore, go back and read read the studies and listen to podcasts like this, and then you know go back and re-ask the question and see if you can actually answer it this time. Particularly with the potential to gain weight, that's a really fascinating conversation when you hear experts like uh, Lewis James, for example, at uh, Loughborough University here in the UK, where they talk about you know, we need to think about how obsessive we get with our hydration strategies because all that extra fluid that we're drinking may increase the, uh, you know, the, the weight, which has implications for performance, also increases risk of injury, but also you might need to stop and have a pee somewhere. What's the situation there? So just think, just think. And that's the problem we have with, you know, good science involves a high degree of reductionism, but that doesn't mean we want to keep the reductionism in our thinking processes and how we're actually going to apply this stuff into the real world. And the real world does not operate on reductionism, believe me. So you've really, uh, you've really helped us on that one. Um, in the same way that creatine tends to be uh, something that people associate with muscles and strength and power, we also tend to associate it with men. Well, you know, is it only men? What about what about women? What are the implications for women who historically have shied away even from 
taking their protein intake seriously because of fear of increase in, in muscle mass, other than potentially female bodybuilders where they might be trying to do that. Why, why should women consider creatine or not? And is there anything you wanted to add into that conversation as it relates to, to females and uh, creatine use? Yeah, so there hasn't been a lot of studies that have truly compared males to females with regards to responsiveness to creatine supplementation. But there's definitely a lot of evidence to show that creatine can be effective in a female population, including postmenopausal women. Darren Kando has done quite a few studies with Phil Chilibeck in that regard to show that it can enhance muscle mass, strength, but also bone health in that particular population. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of evidence to show that it it definitely can be effective. I think more science needs to look at sex-based differences and the implications of that. But on the whole, right now, I would su- suggest that it is effective for females. And again, hopefully with some of that evidence that it can increase muscle mass, but also help you lose fat mass, maybe creatine will become more important from a, from a female perspective. And then also there's some evidence that, for example, if you take creatine when you're pregnant, there's some potential benefits to the baby. So things like that are also kind of emerging areas of research to show that creatine is not only for males or for bodybuilders, but it's also for females as well. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And in the same way, I was left with that feeling from my conversations with Professor Rawson, Professor Canal, Professor Sell. Likewise, with you, you know, it's amazing that we can keep talking about creatine and still make these conversations last as long as they do. But we pretty much run out of time here. But there was just a couple of things I wanted to delve into with you since this is some areas that you are involved with in your own research currently. And the one question I didn't ask you, which I'd love to quickly chat about is, well, what about when we take creatine? You know, you've talked about dosing, you've talked about you know, um, that acute loading phase and so on. But like, you know, what about before training, after training, between sets? I've seen people do these things. What are your thoughts on that? And what have you seen in the research thus far? Yeah, so there's been three published studies looking at the effects of creatine before training versus after training. And all three show a very slight advantage to after training. And we actually put those three studies together into a meta-analysis And when you put those three studies together, it actually shows that creatine after was superior than creatine before. But there's only three studies. It's pretty small and it's hard to have, you know, strong evidence from those studies because there's a lot of variability between those studies. I got criticized a lot for including them into a meta-analysis. People were like, what? You can't do that because it included younger individuals and older individuals and different dosing strategies and things like that. Mm. And a problem with those studies or a limitation, I should say, for those studies is that they use a between subject design. So for example, you would train for a certain period of time, let's say 10 weeks with creatine before training. I would train for 10 weeks with creatine and I get creatine after training. And we'd see how big and strong our muscles got. And the after group got a little bit bigger and stronger, but is that just because we have different genetics, different sleep patterns, different protein intake, all those things that can affect muscle adaptations. And so we're just finished within subject design. So what I did was I made my participants, 
they trained one side of their body one day and they got either creatine before training or after training. And then they strength trained their other side of their body the next day and got the opposite. So if they got creatine before training on their right side, they got creatine after training on their left side. And we looked at muscle mass changes and strength changes between the right and left sides. And when we did that, there's absolutely no difference between before or after training. So right now I suggest that it actually doesn't matter if you consume it before training or after training. And we've also just published a study in collaboration with Dr. Darren Kando and the student was uh, Scotty Mills who ran the study. And we looked at creatine during training. And that is also a very effective strategy. So essentially after each set, you just take a sip and that also worked to enhance muscle mass and strength gains over a training period. So the answer to timing, I would suggest to take it close to your training, but it doesn't matter if you take it before training, during training, or after training. Yeah, and if we, if we reduce that to the, the most basic view of it, I guess the most important feature is taking it, period, right? That's the most important thing because everything else is, it has varying levels of importance or relevance, but ultimately the huge percentage of that's going to be just taking it on a daily basis, right? Or the variations that you discussed at the beginning. Absolutely. So when we first got those results to show that there was no difference between before and after, at first we were like, oh man, that sucks, right? We always, as researchers, you're always looking for that P less than 0.05. But when I thought about it for a couple of minutes, I was basically like, this is probably a good thing because now people can take creatine whenever they want mm. and get the benefits from it. So it's actually from a practical standpoint, it's a pretty cool study, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of practical, I wanted to end on uh, sort of a science to practice type perspective. I know that you, you published recently a, a review on some practical strategies for creatine uh, usage in MMA athletes, which is always interesting with athletes, the nature of how they fight, how they compete, how they prepare, make weight and so on. And, you know, we'll put links to all of this in the show notes. So everyone listening, you've got to come to the, to our website, which I'll refer to at the end of this podcast to read all these things. But Scott, tell us about the practical aspects in the context of MMA athletes. First, I should mention that Tony Ricci was the lead author on that particular paper. And again, myself was on there and then Dr. Darren Kando. And so Tony Ricci is involved with elite MMA athletes and has a lot uh, renowned kind of practical experience working with them. And me and Darren are just the creatine nerds on the paper. Good to and, be in uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it was it was a really cool paper to kind of get together and, and to write because it was of great interest to me to look at kind of what are the practical strategies to implement creatine into fighters because things that you need to take into consideration is is weight gain, for example. But looking at creatine, it could be effective not only to enhance muscle and performance for fighters, but it could also be effective to enhance their cognition and perhaps could also be protective for their brain as well. So Eric Rossen has been involved with looking at creatine for brain health. And there's some evidence, at least in rats, that 
shows that if you take creatine and performs or cause some sort of traumatic brain injury, that it could be effective in rats. And then in humans, there's been some studies where they've done creatine with hypoxia. And they've shown that if you take creatine, that you get a low amount of oxygen, that you your cognitive function doesn't go down nearly as much as you would predict with just a low amount of oxygen. There seems to be some protective effects for the brain. And we try to translate that into a practical paper for people to essentially read and what type of creatine, when to take it, how much to take it, what about during weight cuts, things like that. So that was a pretty cool, pretty cool paper. Yeah. yeah. Well, I highly recommend. I highly recommend it, and I think your your dog's recommending it too. So listen, look. Clearly, we could talk for much longer about this, but there has to be a limit to how much we can get into. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself and and the listeners for your time today, Scott. It's been fascinating to talk to you and share your knowledge and experience on creatine, which absolutely adds to the discussions I've had with Professor Candam, Professor Rawson, Professor Craig Sell, and so on. So I've got a nice little collection of discussions there, and uh, no doubt I'll enjoy talking to you in, in the future. If people want to follow you and what you're doing, I will put links and so on into the show notes, but just tell us now if you're on uh, Twitter or Instagram or ResearchGate, what, what are the areas that you tend to be most active with when it comes to sharing stuff publicly? Mostly on Instagram. So Scott underscore Forbes underscore PhD. Yeah, I respond to a lot of people on Instagram. So that's usually my main form of either giving out my my current research or talking about my current research and posting that or answering questions. Yeah, no, well, that's awesome. So I'll be sure to link to all of that and have them read uh, your work and the other things that we've talked about. As I said, all the links will be in the show notes which you can find via our website at www.theiopn.com and just look for our podcast and everything will be signposted from there. So once again, thank you, uh, Scott, for your time. It's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode of We Do Science back to you all very soon. Take care, everyone.